Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, my name is Casey Cease. Um, my wife Stephanie and I are members here at Redeemer, our daughters Braylon and Abigail, and we had the joy of being on the launch team with Justin and Brandy and Betty and Jonas. Henry showed up to the party a few years later. Um, and so we're gonna miss you all. Uh, and just know that you're always welcome back. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you in a few years, moving back. So, amen. <laughs> so, if that doesn't happen, we'll just try harder. But anyways, um, if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 through verse 22. I think I, draw, I drew the lucky straw on this one because last week was talking about wives submitting to your husband. And then the week before that was Christians submitting to the governing authorities over you. Preaching that in Washington County here in Texas. In this time of history. So I want to go on a lighter note and encourage you to suffer well. So we talked about submission to authority. We talked about submission, wife submitting to your boneheaded, undeserving husband. We have to answer the question, well, but what if it's unfair? Why would we do that? Why would we live in such a way that is so contrary to the individualistic, self-righteous, self-righted culture? But this passage will see that persecuted Christians, oppressed Christians should still live righteously. Because the judge and jury isn't that of the opinion of both our friends or our enemies, but one who not only invites us to himself, but has lived the path of oppression and of abuse and of isolation and of condemnation on the cross. So that through his resurrection, we might experience a liberation that lasts far beyond our temporary sufferings. And so the first thing we'll see this morning is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He's mindful of those who are right because of Christ. He's aware. He's near. He's mindful. And he sees you. Peter continues on in the passage in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. If we were to take a cursory overview of our social media posts, of our conversations around a social distance water cooler of which we cannot pour our own drink currently, Would, be, would we describe these qualities as how we relate to those in the family of God? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind? Would that be how we address and engage with those who disagree with us? Would that be how we approach and interact with those that either actually are, are our enemies or we perceive to be so? Now, the inner defense attorney in your soul is rising up and saying, objection. You don't understand. 
And I would say, I may not understand your personal experience, but what I do understand is that Peter is writing this letter to the church in view of, through the lens of, the life and death and resurrection and future return of our King Jesus. And so the why behind the ability to face these type of things and the power by which to endure suffering well has nothing to do with us just deciding one day to try harder for God, but to lean into the fact that God has already accomplished it all through his son Jesus. And through the accomplished work of Jesus and by the power of God's spirit and informed by the word of God, we are then enabled and empowered to suffer well for righteous things. The Bible never says if you trust in Jesus, you won't ever suffer anymore. To the contrary, it says if you follow Jesus, you are likely to suffer. So we at least have an opportunity to choose to suffer for right things or to suffer due to the consequences for us pursuing wrong things. And there is a promise for those who suffer for right things that God is mindful of, God is near to, and God is carrying you through as opposed to those who choose to suffer the consequences of their life in rebellion to God, there is a further loneliness and alienation and harm and condemnation based upon the fact that you are rebelling against God and saying to him, I do not want or need a relationship with you. I've got this. And so have we. So we've all been there. He encourages them this unity of mind, can we unite, brothers and sisters in Christ, around the fact that we are all desperately in need of rescue outside of the work of Jesus? Can we agree that without Christ's interaction that we all stand blamed before God, and rightfully so, because our hearts and our lives and our actions are in utter rebellion against the one who made us? As we were born into sin, we lived out that sin nature in various ways, some loudly and proactive and some just internally, that unless you are the Lord, you might never see. But until we're able to come to a place of a unity of mind that we are all united in this desperation, that we are alienated from God because of our sin, and so God did what we could not do by giving his only son to rescue us, to redeem us, to adopt us as sons and daughters, to give us a name and a, a nation and a people and a family that is eternal and lasting, are we then able to endure suffering for the right thing? It's by that view then you can approach, well, what if the law above me is unrighteous? Through the understanding and by the power of the Spirit and by the promises of eternity of Jesus, we can endure. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean that you're going to like it. Doesn't mean you're going to quote hashtag blessed if, it, if it's hard. That's not what it's promising. One of the best promises that we can read these passages and, and hard instructions through is by understanding that whatever afflictions we might face as adopted children of God through Jesus, they are temporary. They're temporary afflictions. Now, temporary to me, being an unimpatient man... Is temporary should be anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Especially when I feel sick. Amen, ladies? 
Husband comes home, the house is clean, the kids are in their place, wife is beet red because she's had 104 fever for three days. Cut to the man with a 99.7, curled up in bed under three layers of blankets, whimpering and begging for Gatorade. I'm not saying that's me, but I've heard of guys like that. A unity of mind is ultimately coming around the fact that, hey, we're going to view the lens of the gospel of Jesus as our uniting front. And we're going to unite around the main thing. Let's unify around that. And then if we're unified around that, the, the culture and the mindset and the posture should then lead to a point of sympathy, which is a patience or forbearance. Sympathy invites us from self-absorption. We're really good at sympathizing for our own hurt, our own suffering, our own items. We sympathize with ourselves very, very often. Even those who are self-hating in the way they speak of themselves, oh, suck it up, you're being weak, whatever, is still a broken form of self-absorption. Sympathy is being invited because of the lives of others that we do life with. Sympathy invokes in us a pathway to get over ourselves. To say, wow, that must be hard. Tell me more about that. How can I help? How can I come alongside of? Have you considered it this way? It's patient. It's long-suffering. It's not self-absorbed. He goes on to say, with brotherly love. It's a family. Now, it's interesting. As broken as families can be in our day and age to invite people into another family that has very odd standards and rules if you look at the Bible compared to the way that life is lived outside of the kingdom of God. That's a bit of a tough sell. Hey, we want you to come from one dysfunctional family to a larger dysfunctional family. <laughs> and while you're doing that, we want you to live differently than everyone else around you. Anyone else feel confused by that? Good marketing, yeah, that'll sell. Sign me up. Altar calls are pretty sparse after those type of invitations. But there is a pathway towards functionality in a dysfunctional family of a bunch of broken people who are unified around the gospel of Jesus, who are living into the fact that we don't have to be so self-absorbed when we live in a kingdom, uh, living in a community with other people who we all have our stuff. When I sit with couples to encourage them or coach them, um, I like to tease them and say, oh my gosh, you are the first couple that's ever gone through this on the planet in all time. <laughs> you mean you have communication issues? You don't fight well? You don't understand whose job is what at the house? You have a different view on how to, how to manage money? You have a different view on how to handle your kids? You have a different view on how to vote? Oh my gosh, that's brand new. <laughs> you are unique. Obviously tongue in cheek. Saying like, hey, welcome to the family. I used to say this all the time, that it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay not okay. Because through Jesus, he makes all things okay. That's community. That's, that's the invitation of biblical, gospel-centric community, is you don't have to be and fake it and be okay. You just can't stay that way. Because there's more for you. This... Brotherly love, he says, with a 
tender heart. Tender heartedness comes from appropriate posture before the Father. It comes from spending time with the Father, not just when things are going poorly or not giving a shout out of grace when things are going well. It's a daily ongoing building of relationship that's foundation is built upon trust. So that when things come your way that may not make sense or go along with your plan, it's not met with an immediate sense of victimization or suspicion. Why are you doing this, God? I thought you were good. It comes from because God is good, and I, even though I cannot see in the moment, you are up to something. Let me speak with my community around me and let them encourage me to remind me of your goodness to hear what I'm struggling with and suffering through, but to know that, hey, there is a pathway that it will one day be okay. We can say that with complete confidence because of the resurrection. It may not be okay right now, but it will one day be okay. And we can live with that hope. He goes on to say, which I think we've nailed in our culture right now, a humble mind. Pretty good at that myself, pretty humble-minded. I'm really proud at how humble I can be. I am the best humble person, Elizabeth. That's absolutely right. Lindsay, I was playing with you. See? Humility. I do that to Lindsay and, and Elizabeth all the time. I come up to Lindsay and I say, hey, Elizabeth. She's like, I'm Lindsay. Yeah, she just listens to it. Yeah. We can have a side AD conversation right now, but we'll get back on here. So thank you, Lindsay. Humility, though, is, is, is a right thinking. It's thinking rightly about God, assessing rightly our own need. And it's difficult to rightly view ourselves before God and judge other people. If we understand how broken and blessed we are, it's really hard to dehumanize other people. If you realize you're broken and you're blessed, it's hard to dehumanize. If I find myself dehumanizing, lessening, not viewing another person as equally needing the saving power of Jesus, then I know that humility is not at work and that the Spirit of God is not cultivating that fruit and that I'm not coming with a humble mind. He says, instead, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Um, revile is to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner, to lash out at. He says, don't respond in evil with evil. Don't repay this anger, abusive talk with angry and abusive talk. Now, I'm not going to be the social media police. In fact, I have a newsfeed blocker on my desktop because I would get sucked into the vortex of anger. It's important to understand that you can be wrong in the way that you're right. You can be right the wrong way. And, and I'm guilty of that. And how I, at times, can be high and mighty, at times I can think better or smarter than other people, I have to be careful in the ways by which I approach being right, both within the kingdom Remembering this unity of mind, a sympathy, a brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, but also with those outside of the kingdom. And it's difficult to comprehend why us followers of Jesus expect people who do not have the same belief structure or framework to think exactly the way that we do. And so we believe if they do not yet know God through the the power of Jesus and are not yet filled by the Spirit and do not have the Word as their guide, and yet they think what we're talking about is strange or weird, and then we're surprised that they behave that way, 
That's on us. And when we think the way to approach that, quote unquote, say it like it is, so that, quote unquote, we can point them to righteousness, we're not actually following Jesus in that regard. Actually, the only time I would argue, then we can talk about it over Scripture, that Jesus really got confrontational in the Scriptures was to the self-righteous religious people. And perhaps that's because they would not listen any other way. That's ultimately one of the things that led to him being murdered as well. Okay, we can get away with, okay, don't repay evil for evil. Okay, okay, God, I'll work on that. Let me try harder. Don't revile for reviling. Until I looked it up in the dictionary, I was just like, I don't know what that is. But he goes on and says something next. He says, but on the contrary. Everyone's asking for God's blessing until they read the small print. On the contrary, bless. To ask God's divine favor to be upon your enemy. For to this you were called. Why? That you may obtain blessing. How do we have a unity of mind by understanding that our worst enemy is equally in need as we are of the redeeming, saving grace of Jesus Christ? And through that lens, what claims or rights do we really have other than those that have been given to us eternally? That can either be in cause rage or a sense of liberty and freedom. Is it freeing you or entrapping you? You want to attain a blessing? Bless those who do evil to you. Hold your tongue and don't revile. Karen Job, a commentator, put it this way. He says, these qualities that presume a, they presume a high commitment to the stability and well-being of the community. Modern Western concepts of individualism tend to trump commitment to community. Where commitment is found, it is often evaluated in terms of individual needs. She goes on to say, an individual whose needs are no longer met by a community terminates the commitment and seeks a new and more obliging group. So if this community isn't meeting my needs or doing what I want them to do, I'm going to go find some other place to do my faith. That's individualism. That isn't what Peter's talking about here. Patience, long-suffering, not reviling, not meeting evil with evil, but remembering the grace by which we were given and that we so desperately need ourselves. And had God not extended that mercy to us, we would be just as condemned. It's only by God's grace. Peter continues on in verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a psalm of David that Peter is bringing back as a remembrance before these people. It says, the Lord is attentive and aware of the righteous. There's a relationship and an intimacy and a nearness of the Lord. Would you rather be broken and poor and beat down and near to God? Or wealthy and powerful and all having and far? 
that reorients. Now, a lot of us in America are like, well, how do we have both? If I give away 10%, pay as much taxes as I have to, am nice to my wife most of the time, shouldn't I be able to have that? And, he, and Peter's saying, nearness to God in the midst of our suffering is so much better than having it all now because it will be taken away. It doesn't last. Are you going to invest in a relationship that is lasting and eternal, or are you going to invest in relationships that are fleeting and used? People leave community all the time, sometimes for right things. If people start preaching crazy stuff and don't believe God and don't believe the Bible and are encouraging other people to do the same thing, you got to be careful. But you still be slow and curious and ask questions, not condemning, not reviling, but begging the Lord for mercy for all involved in the conversation. But instead, we're just quick to take our ball and go home if we're not completely in agreement on every aspect of life, policy and politics and culture and everything else. That's affinity, that's not community. I'm not interested in being part of a Christian affinity other than we have one affinity, his name is Jesus. Around that, we can have a lot of discussions, a lot of disagreement, we can fight it out in a peaceful way, we can hug it out afterwards and we can fall forward and getting back to the main thing of seeking that those who are lost might be found through Christ, that the orphans and widows are cared for in their distress, that the poor doesn't go hungry in our community if we have anything to say about it. We have that unity. Just for whoever desires to, to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, or hands, I would say, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Remember it said uh, earlier, don't, don't, don't buck up against those in authority of you, over you. Doesn't mean you don't disagree or don't have problems, but I've seen things posted that are just downright dirty about people in government. And all you're doing is making your activity just as evil as theirs. He says, you want to love life? You want to see good days? Keep your tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I've got a confession for you. I go through seasons where I'm addicted to my smartphone. And my family might say, that season is always. Perhaps I'm the only one here that's ever told my child who's growing up and my beloved or my wife, hold on one sec. Hold on one sec. Give, give me, just go watch a show. Just me? I'll probably, I'll probably step down then. Is it just me? Mandy's saying, yes, it's just you. I know that's a lie. <laughs> but isn't that how we view the Lord, that he's too busy for us, that he doesn't know? It says, hey, those who are pursuing this, you have his full attention. He is able, willing, and desiring to be mindful of you and near to you. When that temptation is overtaking you, he's not far away. He's near to you, inviting you to more of him. When you have the most righteous thing to say, guess what? The ones who, who is even more right and actually makes you the right one, makes you righteous, is aware. 
He hasn't checked out. He doesn't need a substitute teacher. He doesn't need to show up on a day rate. He's with you. Now, some of you are arguing with me inside. You're saying, well, Casey, are you saying you never say anything or you never stand up for what is right? I'm not saying that. I'm more talking about the how and when and why than if. We're meant to stand up for what's right, right? But a lot of times we suffer not because for what's right, but because of how we talk about what's right in an evil way. I think we need to be bold. I think we need to be courageous. I think we need to speak truth towards lies. I think we need to be the light in the darkness. I think we need to add some salt to this bland world. But it's how we do it. Because the Bible also says here, it says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't know if you have ever had a look from your spouse, guys. Your, your wife gives you, there's a look. Anybody else? Have, your wife has a look. Lee's nodding, yeah. Anybody else? Matt Parker? Yeah, there's a look. And sometimes you might choose to ignore the look, been guilty, and push through anyways. Brings a different face to the table. A different side, a different... The face of the Lord, he's not abdicating evil. He's not saying, oh, we'll just let them do it. They don't know any better. The Bible is very clear that he will bring justice to the unjust. But if we rightly understand that injustice, that we are also deserving of that just, that justice for the unjust, understanding that we're actually deserving, it was only because of his grace that we're not receiving it, then we slow down a bit in wanting to rain down the fire of hell on these people. Had God not been merciful to us, we too would be standing right in the face of the Lord being against us and not for us. And I say this with as much humility as the Lord would grant me, but if you're here this morning and have yet to place your hope and trust in Jesus, you might feel free temporarily. The face of the Lord is against you. And him allowing you to feel the pleasures of the immediate pleasures of this world isn't one of getting away with it, but permitting that you experience suffering for evil. It doesn't have to be that way. So, in view of what Christ has accomplished, verse, verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous, passionate, for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, set apart. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What if they're being disrespectful to me? Gentleness and respect. Why? Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The second thing we see is the righteous are always blessed by God. The greatest blessing we can have from God isn't stuff, land, or wealth. It's God himself. 
He is near and mindful of those who suffer. Christians were blamed in the first century for the bad things that happened in the Roman Empire because they refused to pray to these Roman gods. Because of their refusal to pray to these Roman false gods, bad things would happen and people around them would say, it's your fault if you would have just gone along with this. Look at what you've done. But notice what it says. It says, suffering for righteousness sake, not for self-righteousness. I think we can err on the side of being so convicted that what we happen to agree with also is the right thing and we're willing to fight about it. But there's gentleness and respect in the how. See, I think a lot of times humility, just like the first century, humility is viewed as weakness. And the Bible communicates that this idea of humility and gentleness is actually a place of strength and of power because you're sitting in a, in a hammock of faith believing that God is actually who he says he is and he will accomplish all that he has set out to do. That he will ultimately bring justice and righteousness. He will make wrong things right in the end. That his righteousness, and don't you worry, Christian, his righteousness far exceeds, your, far out exceeds yours of what you can muster up on your own. But every ounce of righteousness has been deposited in you because of Christ alone. Because you are found right, because what God has done, you don't have to fight to prove that you're right anymore. Because you've been made right and found right, because what God has done through Jesus, you no longer have to fight to be proven right anymore. Your righteousness is because of Christ's work alone. It's been deposited, it's been inherited, it's been gifted. So why do we have no fear? Not because we're brave or courageous or American. We have no fear because we are invited and called and commanded only to fear God. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When you rightly understand that the creator of the universe, the redeemer of the universe, the judge of the universe has final authority and power and that any suffering we are to face or endure is temporary compared to the eternal promises that we have in King Jesus, then we are able. Doesn't say, it doesn't say here you don't feel nervous or embarrassed or shy or scared or angry. It doesn't say those emotions but are you going to bank on those or are you going to bank on the promises of the Lord Jesus? And those promises are hard to grasp and hold on to if you wait to pursue God only when things get tough. The invitation of the Lord, the invitation of this passage is to be engaged in biblical community beginning today. And that's not just joining an organization or paying some money or filling out a card. It's placing your hope and trust in the accomplished work of Jesus alone. But notice he says here, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. Prepared for what? Always being prepared to make a defense to the, anyone who asks, for, asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Being prepared to give a defense, an apologetic of 
your faith? Why, why are you able to endure so much? What is, what is behind all that? Be prepared. Are you able to articulate the, God, the goodness of God applied to you that is empowering you by his spirit to act other? Interestingly, even before the pandemic, um, that uh, I would get complimented on patience. Because the way I experience suffering, by the way the Lord's wired me, is having to wait for stuff. Being a bit more type A than some, I don't know the statute of limitations, so I may or may not allegedly have cut through gas station parking lots to avoid a light. Back in, way back 25 plus years ago. And as I became a believer and I started growing in my faith, the Lord convicted me that one of the ways that I can daily be different in the community and culture that I live in to earn the right to speak of the good and gracious patience of God with me is to learn to be patient. Now, early on, I was a bit more rigid, a bit more legalistic, and so I would intentionally pull into the slow lane. I would go to the longer line at the grocery store. I would intentionally position myself to force myself to be patient. I did not like that. But oddly enough, one of the most frequent ways that I'm able to start a spiritual conversation is by someone mentioning my patience. I don't look patient. So when I am patient, it seems to those who probably I shouldn't be patient with, like a miracle. Now, I'm not always internally patient, but I've learned to shut up sometimes. Sorry, kids. Be quiet sometimes. Christian swear. So with that in mind, I, I've had people say to me, sir, thank you so much for being patient. And like Harry, check out people, waiters and waitresses. And I'm able to say with authority that I'm only able to be patient because the Lord has been so patient with me. And sometimes that's all that gets to be said that time. Or sometimes there's more that can be said. And I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Are you ready? We all live a life preaching some sort of good news. The question I would ask you is what good news does your life advocate for? Where are you directing people with your life? What message is the pathway to hope? What gospel is my life preaching? As I prepared for this sermon, I had to ask myself that. The reason that we can learn to be gentle and respectful is that we, know we don't need to be defensive because we have the ultimate defender. Am I still always patient? My family would warmly tell you no. But they can tell I've been working to let the Spirit work that in me and to work with the Lord in that. To be patient, to be gracious, to be long-suffering. Ultimately, your, your engagement with the Lord and your belief in the Lord reflects how we engage with hard situations, dealing with confronting unrighteousness, how we deal with our own sense of righteousness and rightness. And Peter goes on to say, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, 
now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The third thing we see in this passage is that Christ, who is perfectly righteous, is blessed by God. You want to experience blessing? Know the one who is blessed. Follow the one who is blessed. The pathway to ultimate blessing is in Christ alone. Through that blessing, we might experience the saving and rescuing and redeeming power of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us isn't just a verse that we throw out there, but is one that we can embrace because through him we have been made new. Through him we can go to the King of kings and Lord of lords who has authority over all spirits, who has authority over life and over death, who has authority over all political parties and all governments and all rulers and all wicked people. The one who is victorious is our King. The one who we are longing to receive blessing from has given it freely just by his power and his presence with us. Christ, who is perfectly righteous, is blessed by God. Martin Luther says this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture, so for the next 45 minutes, I'm kidding. We can see that the Lord has power and authority and range over all elements of creation. He has authority over the fallen spirit, the broken spirit, the obstinate spirit, the sinful person, and even the demons themselves shudder at the name of Jesus. He uses this illustration of just in the same way that God, through water, saved Noah and eight people total. In fact, the water that which saved them was the one that brought condemnation to all who were enemies of God. And in the same way with baptism, we come and align ourselves with the life and the death and the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. In case you've forgotten, water is life-giving and can be life-taking. Being saved through this water is that by alone in Christ, through his accomplished work by faith in him, can you be saved today. You can be rescued today. You can be made new today. You can be forgiven today. It's not going to be easy. Life is hard. Suffering comes our way. Loss happens. Pain happens. Injustice happens. Whether it's intentional or accidental, we face it. So the real question we have to sit with today is would I rather be near to the one who made me and redeemed me and be near to him and have intimacy with him through this temporal suffering with an eternal promise, would I rather live for the moment and for today and for the temporary fun with a long-term eternal expense? If we begin to view life and faith in a bigger picture that way, when, when Jesus, through his word and by the spirit of God and through the word of God and God's people invites us to this kind of submission, He's not inviting you to a place of weakness. He's asking you to acknowledge that you are weak without him. And through that acknowledgement and proper posture and the way we engage with each other, that's where we experience his power. Let's ask him for that power today so that when suffering does come, we are near to the one who suffered before us 
that endured suffering on our behalf so that we might live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for meeting us through your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would empower us. Father, it's, it's a hard word to read. And quite honestly, through our framework and our day-to-day culture, it, it doesn't really make any sense because it feels like we're giving up a lot in order to follow in the way of Jesus. So Lord, help us to continually grow in the fact that we are able to have more of an infinite, eternal God or we can pursue things that will come to an end. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said...